All right. I think we're good and live here now. Um, so yeah, everybody, welcome back to the show. Special guest here today, Croesus underscore BTT, uh, BTC on Twitter. And uh, he was the author of a recent tweet thread in which he looked at Bitcoin adoption through the lens of uh, the way that other technologies have been adopted over time, the timescales on which they happen, and some of the other details. And so because all of us are trying to kind of understand what we're looking at with this thing, and of course we're trying to uh, understand timelines and gain insights about how this <clears throat> excuse me, adoption may, may occur, I thought it would be fun to have him on the show to uh, discuss where this idea came from and all the different details that went into it. So, Croesus, thank you for joining me, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, maybe let's just start with the name because I think that's kind of an interesting little bit of context to have for you before we dive into uh, the analysis that you made. But uh, I think a lot of Bitcoiners might be familiar with the history of, of gold coins and stuff like that. But why don't you tell me why? You chose Creases for your Twitter handle. Yeah, and it's funny. I've, I've actually never heard anybody say it aloud. So I've, I've been wondering myself how to pronounce it, uh, you know, having only read it um, in text before. So Creases is probably the right way to go. So I'm going to go with that now in the future. <laughs> um, yeah, so for anybody who's read the Bitcoin standard, um, which is probably all of you, um, SAFE included the anecdote of who was the first king to, to turn gold into gold coins um, and, and have a system of, of coins in his kingdom. And, and that was King Croesus. Um, and so well, I, I hadn't really thought about, you know, the history there. And, and um, that when I read about that, it, it caused me to reflect on like, what were the choices that would have been made as, as a king back then about how, how to, create better money for your for your kingdom to thrive and you know just that thought portal made me think about how uh if that king had the option between between options we have today uh he might be very interested in bitcoin so i wanted to just kind of um you know embody that uh that historical reference yeah and do you know much about the history of of that that period and you know what what Croesus did with gold coins and stuff like that beyond what was articulated in Safe's book. I mean, I, I that definitely sent me down a, a Wikipedia rabbit hole, uh, but that was some time ago. So, um, do you do you are you familiar with Croesus? Yeah, very kind of surface level. Just that you know, I, I believe his father uh, introduced the Electrum coins, and then oh. he was the first to kind of standardized gold coins uh, in the ancient world. And then, of course, we know the, the story from there. Right, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, well, why don't we break into the analysis, man? Let's uh, get into the, the meat of this thing. Uh, yeah. why, why don't you tell me a bit about, uh, you know, why the genesis of the analysis you put together and then, you know, what you kind of discovered or elucidated as a result of doing the work? Yeah, um, so... When I've been thinking about Bitcoin adoption, I, I come at it from a um, I come at, come at it from a technology consulting uh, background. I, that's I spent many years in, in management consulting, um, working on technology stuff, um, technology clients of all of all types, and technology adoption curves are 
you know, an important um, part of how you think about the, the manner in which technology will be adopted and change will come to in any technology industry. Um, so that has always been in my head that, that the bell curve, the classic bell curve of, of how a technology is adopted, where you've got your, your innovators and then your early adopters and then your majority in the middle of the bell curve and then your laggards coming later. Um, and that has always been you know, part of how I view what's going on with Bitcoin. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we, we believe that we're looking at the, the adoption of a superior savings technology, to borrow a phrase, um, and that, that everybody will, will eventually see the, the merits of the superiority of storing value in, in Bitcoin over your current alternatives. So, you know, how, how do people arrive at that conclusion, the conclusion that, that has brought us here? Um, well, in theory, that would follow the, the normal distribution, the, the bell curve of, of some people figuring it out way earlier, and then more and more people figuring it out um, as, as it picks up steam and, and society converges around the idea that this thing is, is valuable and, and worth including in how you manage your wealth. Um, so that idea has been kicking around in my head. And, and when I think about um, the stock to flow model and how it, it causes people to, to recoil um, because it seems so audacious that uh, how on earth could um, a 2x increase in scarcity because of the halving um, drive it a 10x um, increase in, in value of this of, of Bitcoin and when I think about like what are the, the factors that are involved there it's it's the literal increase in, in scarcity the, the decrease of the block reward but it's also the the assumption or the reality that there are more people fighting over those newly mined coins in each successive four-year reward era um, by virtue of there being more people who have woken up to Bitcoin. Um, so I wanted to try to, to mash those together. And when you combine those two data sets of, of what are, what's the assumptions around how many people have existed in the Bitcoin space fighting over coins in the past and then projecting that into the future using that bell curve, and then you combine that with the increasing scarcity, the, the decreased block reward over the subsequent or your halving periods. What kind of, um, I, I, I called it in the thread, I called it a, a adoption adjusted scarcity, but really it's, it's um, an approximator of, of your felt scarcity or experienced scarcity. Like how, how rare will a one Bitcoin feel um, in, sub, in future block reward eras, assuming that we follow a, a bell curve of adoption. And by, by definition, there, there will be more and more and more people in the space fighting over Bitcoin. Um, 
so to get there, uh, th that was the, the premise, and it's an easy enough um, idea to try to smash those two things together, but I had to make some, some serious assumptions about where we are in that bell curve in order to get there. Um, and John, what, what are, what's your um, perspective on where we are in terms of number of Bitcoiners at this point? Well, I mean, I pretty much rely on the same things that, you know, you probably do. You look at wallet addresses uh, with over a certain threshold or amount of Bitcoin. I, I think it's, it's probably a difficult thing to determine, really. So um, I think it's very subjective, probably. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see that you, I think you used wallets with over a thousand dollars, was it? Or 10? Yeah. Yeah. A thousand dollars. You know, that, that I think that's probably as good as any. Um, I think most of us are kind of stuck in uh, kind of the framework of subjectively kind of feeling it out. Where does it feel like vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, internet in the early nineties sort of thing. I think that's probably the most, you know, relevant corollary, although you could make the case, you know, for s smartphones, something like that. But I think the internet maybe is, a, is the magnitude is is more on par so I, I don't I don't really know I, I generally say without any real data behind it that we're probably early 90s internet right now yeah yeah exactly um, yeah I totally agree with that and it is so, it's such a subjective measure to, to have to make um, I ended up drawing the line at, at anybody who has stored a thousand dollars in Bitcoin has some you know significant skin in the game and or, or, sure. or has decided that bitcoin is worthy of uh, storing a significant portion of their wealth if i'm being honest i think that the bar should actually be quite a bit higher than that but i was i was being conservative mm -hmm. um for for this metric uh i think the reality is that it <laughs> if people have truly arrived at the the shelling point that um bitcoin is on track to unseat all other forms of, of money and become the preferred store of value for the world. If you've truly arrived at that point, then um, you have set up your own Bitcoin wallet and you have stored your Bitcoin in that wallet. If we look at the, the blockchain right now, there's, there's only 3 million um, addresses with over uh, 0.1 Bitcoin in them. Uh, and if you go, if you look at one Bitcoin, how many addresses have at least one Bitcoin in them? Uh, it's like 600,000. So, it, so it, that's not very many people at all, but I wanted to take the, the more conservative assumptions of, I've heard some exchanges say there are 60 million Bitcoiners. Um, and uh, I sort of drew the line at, all right, who has a, a material amount of Bitcoin? Um, somewhere between 3 million and 60 million. And I went with, 10 million. But where does that put us in the in the bell curve of of uh, classic adoption curve? That that would put us um, 0.5 percent of the way to what I deemed um, our total addressable market in terms of the number of people in the world who actually have wealth to store um, at all. Yeah. And yeah. so th that puts us very early in that curve. Um, meaning that we've had three entire reward eras and we're still only 0.5% into uh, this adoption curve. Um, the numbers that then get spit out when you smash that uh, adoption curve 
against the future um, mining are pretty dizzying because the, the way the, the front half of the adoption curve scales, um, the front half of the bell curve is, you know, you, if you think about it, it's, it's kind of an exponential. It, it, it rapidly goes up in the front half. Mm -hmm. um, so we have an exponential increase in the expected number of people coming on board um, over the coming years until, until we reach our, um, until we've onboarded the majority. Uh, and to, to complete the, the analysis, I, I was trying to figure out what, what do I expect in terms of the, a reasonable time frame for the world to wake up to this as a savings technology that uh, needs to be a part of uh, everybody's approach there to wealth management. Um, and the internet is the thing that, that makes no sense of, of how long did it realistically take to go from early, early internet and, until the majority of the world was using the internet. And it's something like 20 years, right? If we think about it that way. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the, the um, goalpost I was um, using for setting up my expected timeline of, of how long it'll take for us to get up that bell curve and onboard the majority. Uh, and so it ended up being that the way the bell curve is set up is, in the very middle is your, your zero point, your average person arrives at that moment in time. Um, and f as you move away from the center point, that's, uh, that's a standard deviation. So 60 something percent um, fall within negative one to one standard deviation on the bell curve. And you go out a little bit further than that, you know, two standard deviations and so on. Um, and right now we're still at the negative 2.6 standard deviation point based on my assumptions, um, which means we have, we have an awful lot of, uh, of ground to, to, to cover still in terms of onboarding that majority. And they're going to come faster and faster if, if it follows a classic adoption curve. So, uh, so yeah, so well, when... Go ahead. I was just going to jump in for a sec. Don't don't lose your spot. But the yeah. you know I think the question you asked a few minutes ago is really important because you you said you know what would you consider to be adoption? And I think some I, I heard some or read some comments to your post uh, in the thread. And you know a lot of people will say, oh, okay, well then the total addressable market is uh, however many people at whatever you define as adoption, and that's like a really critical factor because. The, the degree of adoption can change, right? And just by a simple example, I was using ICQ on my home computer and that was me adopting the internet in let's say 95 or 96 or whenever the hell it was, right? That's, yep. a very, that's, that's very different than how I use and interact with the internet today. I'm on it far more, I do far more with it, it's far more integral to my life. So, yep. you know, adoption, I guess what we're talking about is initial adoption, which again is very ambiguous and kind of, hard to determine and probably maybe impossible to standardize across the board, which is why, of course, you just kind of took a conservative approach. But, you know, I think it's important to have for the context of a conversation like this to know that 
not only is it kind of like a tick box for each person that they adopted, but also once, once we get adoption, we get degrees of adoption that, that may extend the curve further than, you know, such models may have initially pro, uh, projected. Absolutely. Yeah. It, that, that's an excellent level of nuance there that I thought about this. I, I, I waffled with how um, granular to go um, yeah. and, and where to draw the line. But I think you're right. Like for me personally, I, I got in, I started buying into crypto actually through like through getting excited about Ethereum um, in 2016, in early 2016. And at that point I had skin in the game. So I would have met this, the, the bar that I just set. Um, but I was nowhere near the level of understanding and, and confidence and um, excitement that I have since reached. So if you were to, you know, how many, how many uh, people in the world have reached maximalism or have come to the conclusion that, that fiat currencies are, are headed towards failure in some period of time and that Bitcoin is the lifeboat? Uh, that's probably a, a tiny portion of the, the number of people who own Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think one of the things that gets missed sometimes with uh, critics of this sort of thinking is they, well, I guess they're thinking in linear terms. So they think, how could you get another 100 million, 500 million, billion people adopting the technology as is today? And the, the right answer to that probably is they won't. You know, a billion people aren't going to adopt Bitcoin as this clunky, risky, difficult to set up, you know, run your notes, secure your Bitcoin, all this kind of stuff as it is today. But the, the internet that, let's say, people in emerging markets over the last five to 10 years engage with at the outset is very different than the internet that you or I probably engage with at the outset of our adoption of the internet. You know, so as the technology changes, the kind of insertion point of the adoption and what, what it even seems like the consumer is adopting is going to be dramatically different. I think that's that what you just said there is, is perfect. Like the, at some point, they won't be adopting Bitcoin. They'll be adopting digital money. It won't even be Bitcoin. It'll just be part of the fabric of society. It might be how they receive their paycheck. You know, like it, it, it will be abstracted away from, from what it is today. But right now, we're, we're, you know, we're fighting dial-up and, and right. digging through 1995 like, user interfaces. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, keep keep going from where you were if, yeah. you, if you remember your spot. Yeah, so so well, I guess I'll I'll start from the end now that I've gotten close <laughs> to it. Um, the result of mashing those data sets together that that admittedly involved quite a bit of assumptions, triangulating to try to figure out like you know where roughly are we and and how big is this uh, total number of adopters going to be. Um, the rough outcome of that was that it showed that over the past three um, reward eras, the felt scarcity, the adoption adjusted scarcity has 10 X um, every single reward era. And, you know, and that that trend is expected to go into the future for the next uh, four um, reward eras uh, as you move down the, the bell curve. So 
like what what does that mean what why does that um why does that add to the story of, of what's going on with bitcoin adoption is you know I, I think about like how crazy it is that that early miners were were, were accumulating tens of thousands of bitcoin such that they decided uh, I need to give some, I need to just distribute some into the ecosystem and I'm going to go buy a pizza. That's the, the level of scarcity that existed that early on, um, which is to say that Bitcoin was abundant. It had, it had no scarcity effectively. Um, but that's because there were so few people who were in that market. There were so few people fighting over Bitcoin. At that, you know, in those very early days, it was, it was probably a hundred guys who were mining. And that means there's, there's no scarcity at all. But if we project, and if right now we have 10 million people in the world who would like, to, who are potential customers for, every, for, for the newly mined Bitcoin, people who might be interested in, in buying newly mined Bitcoin, um, that means there's some amount of scarcity. But if we project down the uh, adoption curve, um, 10 years, you're not looking at, at 10 million people fighting over each newly mined Bitcoin. You're, you're looking at a billion. And the, that, so what, that's, that's four orders of magnitude? Uh, oh no, that's, that's two orders of magnitude? Three, three orders of magnitude. That, um, that's a, a much different world that uh, will exist in terms of the felt scarcity of Bitcoin. And the, the impact of that, you can easily see how um, if, if the amount of mining, the amount of supply, the stock to flow is what's really driving the value of, of Bitcoin. Um, and we've had this clear pattern project, you know, looking backwards of there being 10x more scarcity on a, on a, a adjusted to the number of adopters per reward era instead of the 2x that you see in the literal block reward numbers. And then that, that 10x scarcity per reward era goes into the future as well. There's no, there's, that lines up with the, the crazy projections of the stock to flow model into the future. That is a hundred thousand reasonable for this reward era. Sure. Is a million for the next one. That's where people start to balk. Right. But if we are following this bell curve, we should expect an exponentially greater number of adopters over the next four, six years, then, then, then the linear, if, then the linear rate we're currently on, if you were to project that into the future. Right. Uh, so that like, it lines up with the stock to flow model and provides just, it, it's not a direct um, support for that thesis, but it's a, an indirect sense test that checks out. Well, I think some of the criticism, at least, of the stock-to-flow model has been that, you know, it, you can't really model demand, right? Yes, it's, it's great that you're uh, modeling this against a uniquely scarce asset with, you know, um, 
yeah, extremely unique characteristics and comparing it to ones with perhaps similar characteristics. But, you know, one of the critiques has always been, uh, you know, that you can't account for demand and, you know, the, the future is uncertain. So that's just a fact that you can't, but I guess what we're, we're you know, what we're attempting to do is extrapolate based on previous demand, which a lot of people would poo poo. Others are more okay with, but I find that, you know, your model is cool because you know, that's, it, it's kind of showing how demand unfolds with new technologies. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's value in that. You know, some people would say, you know, you just, you just can't do that. You can't anticipate or predict demand, but you know, in, in the practical sense in the world, you know, people do that all the time to, to, yeah. to make economic calculation for businesses, whatever. And I think it's, it's the adoption curve is great for, for doing that. And one of the things I think is, well, I'd like to get your take on this, actually, because I, I think a lot of the kind of VC legacy system, financial people, this one might be kind of sneaking in on like in the back door sort of thing because there's so many other competitors. Like, for example, when the telephone came online, mm-hmm. as, far, as far as I know, there wasn't many competitors that looked exactly. I mean, there was the, the telephone system and the telegraph, you know, was the new technology. And it wasn't that, you know, it was clear that this, there wasn't a thousand other competitors, for example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with Bitcoin, if it was, if it just existed in a vacuum, I think more, more people would say, holy shit, like, wow, look at this new technology. We should get on board. We should build around it. We should be looking at it in terms of uh, adoption, like s- previous technologies in the past. But because there's so many others that are, that are perhaps muddying the waters, it's not as clear that it's a, you know, a unique t- technological innovation and in infrastructure because uh-huh. there's so many others that um, seem to be attempting to do the same thing or a different thing or it in a better way or something like that. So, you know, do you think that will have the effect of, because as you pointed out in the piece, Typically, adoption cycles in technology have been uh, becoming shorter, right? So the adoption is more rapid in the modern era. Do you think some of these variables around Bitcoin will cause it to be? And you know, another one. While we're on this point, is it's probably attempting to unseat more powerfully entrenched um, incumbents than previous technologies. Not to say that the phone companies weren't big and powerful incumbents or the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. But there's probably no more powerful incumbent than central banks and governments, right? That's yeah. the kind of final boss of everything. And so yeah. will those dynamics, you think, influence the, the timeline of adoption? Or are we just kind of at the mercy of, of how these things unfold and it doesn't really matter the factors that uh, stand in its way? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that they, those two forces are in opposition, and I'm not really sure which will be more powerful in the end, that in the information age, um, technologies are adopted faster. So the, the, the S curve, the adoption curve for something like a smartphone has been lightning fast. It's been, we, we went from, you know, like 10% adoption to majority adoption in, in a matter of like five years, which is crazy fast, whereas the radio took uh, several decades to, to achieve that. Um, 
so there's that that things move faster now but as you said that this is this is not a, a, a simple technological innovation this is this is no gadget that you go buy this is something far far deeper and more entrenched it really is the it's the base layer of of civilization that bitcoin represents a uh, a challenge to and and a darwinian threat to because it is a better base layer than what civilization is currently built upon um meaning fiat currencies and or, or even gold um so that i think takes time and and i think that ultimately satoshi accounted for this whether he meant to or not and has built in the the cadence that it will follow i i think that that the unbelievable genius of having a quadrennial having that by definition will you know cause a supply shock that throws off the the price equilibrium of supply and demand and and deterministically drives prices up to and causes a bull run every four years and that that bull run is really the mechanism that, it, that attracts attention and causes people to put, get some skin in the game because they can't stand that they've they can't stand to watch it go on another run like they did four years ago and and stay on the sidelines and so that that mechanism is i think the cadence by which we'll, we will actually be moving down the adoption curve um every four years there's a little <laughs> we're going to have a little uh ring of growth in our in our tree um in our tree trunk and that's the the boom times man what would you give to, to just speak to satoshi or them or whoever they were just to ask them these questions like is yeah. is, is this the reasoning behind like did you make it a four-year cycle for these reasons for you know to foster or it, with an understanding of the way these sort of cycles work and the length of time required and all that yeah. kind of stuff. There's, there's so many elements that are absolutely genius. And I, I think that history will look back on what Satoshi's contribution as one of the single greatest inventions ever, if not, if not the greatest single invention in human history. Yeah, and he will be up, or them. I think it's a he, but uh, <laughs> he will be up there with with Newton and Da Vinci, um, and and any of the great polymaths of of history. And I think that some of there's just no way that he had the level of, of um, contrarian mastery and, and correctness about all of these topics in in macroeconomics that um are playing out perfectly that like why four years why have a having like that at all to some extent he thought about this but there have got to be I, I wish i could ask him what was the what's the thing that has surprised you most about about how it is actually working in the wild yeah you know yeah. what unintentional strokes of genius were there because he couldn't 
it's just not possible for one human to have that many breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I mean, I, one, I agree that he'll go down as, you know, probably the greatest inventor uh, of all time, just in terms of the impact of the tool that he's created. Um, and yeah, the, the foresight and the insight and the, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's kind of stunning. And it's, it'd be really interesting to, if, in some kind of uh, alternate dimension, like if, if it had been a two-year having cycle, yeah. it had been a 10-year right. having cycle, like how would these things affect yeah. how this gets out in the wild and how it proliferates? And, you know, we talked about a second ago, forces that may make the adoption of this thing slower, right? The, the, the nature, the, you know, how powerful the incumbents are and maybe and other things. But on the flip side of that is what pulls on human incentives more than money, right? Like it's great yep. to be connected to the internet in the early days to chat with your friends to access information uh, more easily and cheaply than ever before. And, you know, that's very compelling. And that's why the internet, you know, did what it did. But, you know, nothing hits people the way it does that it hits them in their pocketbooks, right? So, you know, and this has been talked about a lot in the space, but, you know, could very, it's very easy to imagine that, you know, gradually then suddenly is an understatement. You know, it's, it just ticks along until everyone goes, shit. And yeah, and they and they get it, and that may mean that doesn't matter how entrenched the incumbents are, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that part of how that's going to happen, I agree that that's how it's going to feel. That um, the bulk of the adoption curve is so much bigger than the first few standard deviations as you head up towards the middle. Um, it's going to feel if this thing plays out the way it is on track to, it's going to feel like suddenly it's the only thing in the world that, that matters to people. And, and that's going to feel wild. Um, but I think that I, so one of the other concepts in an adoption curve, uh, technology adoption curve is, is there's this hazard that, that, that people uh, warn about in the early stages. Um, it's called crossing the chasm. And this is a, a common problem with, with technology startups where you get your innovators, they get the value proposition of your new product and you get the early adopters, but you fail to tra transfer that momentum into the majority. Uh, they don't see it. They don't really get on board. And it's usually it's a failure of marketing or messaging um, on the part of the company. Other examples of that? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember any prime examples, but there, there's a great, there's a classic old business book called Crossing the Chasm uh, that I read a decade ago that identifies this as, as you know, one of the, the major things that you need to be aware of uh, in order to transition how you're messaging away from the, the early adopters and towards, you know, to, in order to evolve how you communicate and uh, entice people towards your product because the things that resonate with the majority are different 
Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of my fears with, with Bitcoin is how do we, you know, do we have the current messaging in place that will resonate with Joe Schmo, let alone the, so I come from the, um, you know, the, the liberal establishment, highly educated, you know, lived in urban California um, community. And, and it was a hard process for me to arrive at Bitcoin because I had to swallow some difficult pills, a series of difficult pills in order to accept that I, everything I had learned in, in university was wrong about economics. Um, and th that's kind of the messaging that we have in place with Bitcoin today. And I, and I don't know how things need to evolve or if they need to evolve in order to avoid the chasm. Well, let's, let's hang out there for a sec because, you know, I always, I've said this a bunch, but once you're in, right, once you're, for lack of a better term, a Bitcoiner, it's like you and all the other Bitcoiners looking out at the world and like waiting, you know, or see, you mm -hmm. know seeing what's happening. We, you know, and sometimes maybe we fail to recognize that we were one of those people out in the world that, you know, those Bitcoiners that came before us were waiting for at some point too. You know, yep. and, and so they were wondering, what's going to get these new people in? Like, what's the messaging going to be that hooks them? And then here we are, we came in. And so I'd be interested in knowing, you know, you, you just described your background and kind of your perspective. What were those big pills uh, that you had to swallow? What were those hooks that ultimately, you know, allowed you to see things differently or had that light bulb moment? Yeah, totally. Um, I think this is, this is, uh, I, I, I have a, a message to, to, to provide, and that is the, the journey of a, of a shit coiner. <laughs> um, how do you go from being interested in, in the technology and the hype around that um, to accepting that all of the, the bells and whistles technology is, is really just distraction? Um, from the, the true innovation, which is monetary policy. It, you know, that's a, that was a journey for me. Um, so yeah, I, I, I started out being interested in, in Ethereum and then moved on to other, you know, I was deeply researching altcoin projects and was approaching this as a, as a technology investor. Um, I had spent, quite a bit of time in Silicon Valley. So that was steeped in me. And, and I, I already had the insight. It, it made perfect sense that, that digital money was the future. It was a digital assets were going to be a big part of the, you know, if you project forward 30, 50 years in the future, of course there's digital assets. And that's, that was my starting point. And, and I, was missing large chunks of understanding that would eventually get filled in on the journey. Um, the big thing that was missing for me was one of the big areas that I was missing was an understanding of monetary policy. I, I went to uh, a top business school and 
Keynes is, is sort of referenced and um, revered as, as, you know, the guy who discovered the, the truth. <laughs> and then that's the extent of it, right? That there's no more conversation beyond that about what are the alternatives or let alone like could Keynes be wrong about some things. And so then you, you build your, your understanding of business on this foundation and without ever really questioning or deciding which foundation to build it upon. Um, so being confronted with that possibility was, and then having to swallow the difficult pill of, oh, wow, my years and years of business training uh, was all built on a, um, on the wrong understanding of, of money. Uh, that was probably the biggest pill to, to have to swallow. And, and of course, you know, Safe is, is right about everything he writes about uh, in the Bible, but um, he, he definitely dunks on, uh, on my people. The, uh, the, the Keynesian liberal establishment is, is not, um, uh, it's not an easy read for, for someone like me, and I, and I don't think that many people um, coming from my world will, will be able to finish that book. Really? You don't think uh, they could get through it? So I, I have, uh, I've now, you know, coaxed a few people into to reading it. Uh, one person balked at the, the middle section where um, Safe makes the connection between Bach and the gold standard and uh, um, trashy pop today and, and fiat money. And, and the broader connection of, of great art comes from you know, sound money. Uh, and and the, the uh, low time preference or the high time preference um, liberal mainstream today is, is doing it wrong, uh, which is, Probably true, but very difficult to hear. Right. Yeah, I think, I mean, that one you have to, well, first of all, it's not exclusively true in my opinion, but I see the, the point he's getting at, you know, and yeah. that artists feel comfortable having a lower time preference and devoting themselves more fully and for longer periods because they know, you know, they're more certain about, you know, the future and the payoff and stability and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, you know, there's always going to be people that like a Jackson Pollock because, you know, that's just their fucking disposition or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I take the point, but I think that one's a little bit further down the rabbit hole yeah, so yeah. that pe people <laughs> may not, it may not click with people initially. Yeah. Um, is it fair to say that this, you know, your own journey, you've kind of, I think a lot of us are probably apolitical in the space or we're, our, our political stance is Bitcoin, but is it safe to say that? those sort of things for you have changed as well as you got further into Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I still, before this conversation, I was like, if I get asked about that, what do I say? I, I don't really know where I am anymore. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> first and foremost, my political views now are Bitcoin. <laughs> that, that's the thing that is clear and true to me. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I still, I hold the values of, uh, of where I come from. Um, the, the intellectual it's, liberal. Yeah. Class. But it's really cracking open, you know, quite a, Pandora's box is the wrong word, but a real juicy sort of intellectual discussion because just, in, and I, you know, I have it kind of ad infinitum here on this, on my podcast, but the fact that people are engaging with, you know, a money, a fundamental organizing economic mm -hmm. mechanism um, of a different nature that's changing on such fundamental levels um, or inspiring in them such fundamental change uh, in so many different uh, areas of their lives. Yep. You know, it's, um, it's really hard to nail down why that would be the case. Yes, you can throw around things like low time preference and you, you, you have a more optimistic view of the future. The future looks more certain and stable. Uh, things look more fair. And, and, you know, some of these things, you know, built into Bitcoin, I would say, is like a value or an ethic of fairness because of its permissionlessness, its censorship resistance and, and those sorts of things. And the, the kind of um, it, it allows for a more even playing field between all participants. And so perhaps on, for something like that, it's the protocol itself the, the, the kind of the attributes of it emitting out a certain ethic. But I think in other ways, it's a far more complex relationship. And, you know, to your point where you say, you know, I'm not really political, but I'm a Bitcoiner. I mean, obviously, I totally agree, but it's, um, or I'm, I'm very similar. But it's amazing how, and this is where the Bitcoin fixes this meme comes from, but if you see, it, it's almost like a new lens, right? It's like those, mm -hmm. it's like glasses you put on. And if you look, and I know this will sound crazy to the people who are not maybe similar to us, but it, it, it bestows a certain degree of clarity on so many things if yep. you somehow look at it through that lens yes yeah and, um, absolutely it's, it's wild to you know watch people on the, on the far left and people on the far right screaming and doing all these antics now uh, in our current climate um pulling down statues and and all sorts of of traumatic acts of like of desperation because something is wrong something is very wrong everybody feels it inequality continues to to go in the wrong direction mm -hmm. <laughs> and nobody is aware of of what i see so clearly now and what you see so clearly that the root cause of this is is money printing and and the lack of fairness in the foundational layer of our civilization yeah. what do you think you know <clears throat> you mentioned that you kind of come from the west coast liberal minded you know intellectual educated sort of background um it's it's interesting to me because i try to think i get why some people you know don't see it let's we'll wind back the clock to kind of you were saying the messaging you know what's the messaging like and what are people kind of uh, latching on to and I'm going to, I don't dislike these guys, but you, you've got people like uh, Eric Weinstein and, and his brother, Brett, right? Mm -hmm. And I listen to these guys talk. And in general, I think they could say, like, I feel like 
it's they're a little too intellectual. Like you could you could get the point yes. across without so many goddamn you know fancy words and stuff like that. But nevertheless, yeah. I think they're well intentioned. And um, but I, I I I I'm starting to think that it's almost too simple of a solution for some. So for some, it's people are just not interested. They're not curious enough about how the world works or how finance or money or economics or anything works. So on, on, to them, it's almost too complex. It's, you know, it's, it's nestled within a bunch of other stuff that they're just not interested in. For others, perhaps the Silicon Valley VC people, you know, the Weinsteins, as I was just mentioning, I feel like it's almost too simple. Like they're, they're trying to drum up all these hyper-intellectual, um, multidisciplinary approaches uh, and conjured up solutions to problems um, when, and, and, and I think we would all agree that as well thought out as they are, they're still doomed to fail if they don't have as an underlying foundation or linchpin fixing the core problem, which I think most of us would agree would be the co-option um, and you know, unfair distribution and control over the creation of money. And yep. it, it, I feel like it's almost too simple for, yeah. for, for, for guys like that to really, to really get it. And I imagine, or you tell me if, if that's kind of a lot of the people that you are used to mixing it up with, is that kind of where they're coming from? Yes. Uh, I actually had a conversation last week with a, a business school friend of mine who, who, you know, thinks a lot like uh, those guys do. Um, I think that the, the root reflex of, the you know intellectual liberal class is if there's a problem let's design a solution let's let's figure out how to set up a better system um, by tinkering with variables and and you know optimizing and so that reflex towards problem solving is is counter to what I think is is the right approach now of well maybe the system is is already overly complicated and, and overly tinkered with maybe we need to go in the other direction of a of a simpler more straightforward more clear cut system um, of of money here and it's just not in uh in the reflex of of those people to to think that way. It's, you know, if you've spent your whole career um, thinking about how to improve upon a system by adding complexity to it, you're not set up to question whether or not we should just shift to a much simpler system. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. And I think more broadly, um, and perhaps as a result of that kind of way of thinking, we're so kind of tuned or have a bias toward intervention, you know, in mm -hmm. modern culture, it seems, doesn't matter if it's with raising your kids or managing the economy or, you know, uh, forming educational curriculum or whatever. You know, it just seems like we don't have faith that, you know, natural systems can work. Yeah. And that's a slippery slope, even I, I recognize that as I'm saying that, because some things require a high degree of both complexity and intervention. But I, perhaps we've just maybe, you know, applied it to too many domains. And I think, you know, Bitcoin represents uh, obviously a new paradigm, but a new system of interaction that kind of 
that says, you know, you don't, you don't need to uh, intervene overly in this. You just need to engage in a manner that suits you and the, the inherent characteristics of the protocol and the system and the incentive structure will take care of the rest. And in yeah. fact, you can't intervene. And so a lot of people are averse to it just simply for that reason, because that's kind of a terrifying proposition for some, that they can't have undue influence on something if they, you know, climb a ladder, or establish a certain degree of, of wealth, power, whatever, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I think it's somewhat antithetical to our, you know, a, a theme in, in modern culture of just, you know, just a desire for control, I guess, you know, people yeah. are, we live in a very controlling culture and we want to control everything. And I mean, look at, look at what's happening in the modern management of, of the economy, you know, through the central yeah. banks. It's like, we want to make sure nobody fails. We want to make sure, you know, everybody gets their checks. We want to make sure, you know, in all this attempt to manage interest rates, unemployment, all this stuff, we ultimately do so much more harm than good, but we're kind of blinded. Um, by our, our fear of relinquishing control. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that makes me think about, like, I've been reflecting on how it's, um, everybody has their own little personal journey for, or set of criteria for why they are, why they fell where they fell in the adoption curve. And for, so many of the, the, the early adopters, all, all of us, um, libertarianism, or at least an openness to that style of thinking of like, do less, have a more level playing field, um, and fairness is, will come out of that. I think that's probably like the biggest um, factor that that exists out there uh, for why somebody might have figured this thing out already. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's telling in, in terms of where, how, who's going to, who's going to be onboarded when in this adoption curve and, and it's going to be people who, who want to, have control or exert control, usually from uh, best intentions, usually because they want to improve the world or, or make things better by tinkering. Um, those people are going to be later in the adoption curve because such a, a core value they have is is that through optimization and and tinkering you can create better systems rather than the libertarian approach of of create a fair and, and equal system and then let things go from there. Yeah. Well, you know, as is often said, uh, in one way, Bitcoin is a wealth transfer to the curious, you know, and I guess you mm -hmm. could also add on to that a wealth transfer to, <clears throat> I think a lot of this boils down, you know, I think our inherent, perhaps, perhaps inherent desire to uh, control and intervene, it, it, it has its foundation in fear and it's in its many uh, different forms. And I think, you know, the people, well, one, it stands to reason that the people that are most disenfranchised, basically the, the, the ones that have far less to lose than those for whom the system has been working well, um, then they naturally just have less fear of whatever's on the other side of this new, new system, right? Because yeah. they're like, well, you know, I've already gotten fucked on, on the one, 
you know, why not, you know, take a chance on this other one where uh, those people for whom the current system is, is working well, um, I think just fear of the unknown and fear of change and, and fear of, of relinquishing control, like I said before. I mean, I think that's, that's a pretty darn ingrained and fundamental thing that many of us, many of us have. And as you say, you know, certain philosophies that people may have been interested in or <clears throat> kind of lean towards over the years, such as libertarianism, may, you know, that probably stems from, a, for, for whatever reason, they are more comfortable with, you know, yeah. not needing to have such a high level of control over whatever, you know, aspect or area of their life. And so I think, you know, Bitcoin is a, tra- it's a, is a wealth transfer to people that are curious, to people that perhaps uh, have nothing to lose or less to lose, to people that uh, are less fearful, are more willing to relinquish control. You know, all, all of these interesting things that creates a dynamic between who adopt, you know, back to your original thread, who adopts something, the reasons for the people yeah. that fall on the different parts of the adoption curve. What, what, what are your reasons for where you fell, John? Like uh, American HODL has this... Uh, he likes to reference the Slumdog Millionaire um, and how the, the lived experience of that protagonist caused him to, to know the answers and caused him to arrive where he, where he did. Yeah. And when I think back on my life, my experiences, there are distinct pieces that, despite my like, liberal establishment disposition, which probably should have made me be later on the adoption curve. These experiences pulled me forward, made me more open to Bitcoin. What was it for you? Like, why did you fall where you fell? Yeah, man, just as a side note, it would be really interesting. And maybe this is kind of an impossible task because it's so subjective and difficult to discern, but it would be really great to have an adoption curve and try to tease out kind of the either life experiences or uh, like personality dispositions or other attributes that like kind of concentrated mm-hmm. in different parts of the exactly. adoption cycle. That would be really cool to see. Yeah. Um, I've never really, to be honest, I've never, as strange as this may sound, I've never really thought about it uh, with regards to me. My, my answer to myself and anytime I've been asked is, for whatever reason, I was just kind of like a on fire with curiosity kid from, from the hop. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess the thing, so, you know, that was all I was, you know, when I was five, six years old, like, I just was interested in a lot of stuff that most a lot of kids didn't seem to be interested in. I you know, wanted to understand what the fuck was going on in, in pretty much as many domains as I could. And, uh, and then one day, my a, a kid I used to play with on the streets, um, she came by, you know, we we're playing basketball or something. And she was my age, but she had skipped a grade. And mm-hmm. I was like, how, how the fuck do you do that? Like, I hate school. I don't want to, like, how do, you, how do I get out of here more quickly? And she just said, you know, oh, I just read a lot. And I was like, what do you mean you read a lot? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that, what, how does that work? She was like, oh, I just read a lot and school got easier. And I was like, oh, okay. Now, I never, I never ended up skipping any grades, but I went home that day and, uh, and read, you know, started reading from my dad's bookshelf, which had a lot of interesting books on you know, psychology and business and economics and stuff like that. Um, but, but based in that story, there's like an openness to changing your own reality by taking in inputs from, from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And, um, and so and beyond that, you know, I, I, 
you know, like I've said this a couple of times on the podcast, but, you know, growing up, I'd be kind of the, 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 we'd be all sitting around, let's say we're in high school, we're all just sitting around having a few drinks and smoking weed and kind of getting up to no good. Uh, you know, I would be the one that would pull out like a $5 bill from my pocket when we're all high as shit and be like, this, why does this have value? Well, this is a piece of paper. Like, why, why can I exchange this for, you know, candy or, or a beer or something? And so, you know, that's pretty much the best answer I can muster. And then when I, when I came across it, like everyone, um, was, I, I was very interested from the get, but I was almost, I was so at the time, so, um, kind of hopeless about the state of the world. You know, I had, mm-hmm. I had done what I considered to be enough digging to determine that things were in kind of, you know, pretty bad shape. And I, you know, like, I guess I was grappling with that. And then when I had come across Bitcoin, I thought, well, this represents a potential solution. And uh, I did, I, I wasn't seeing it from an investment perspective. I was seeing it from I guess more of a political perspective and I was hopeful for it. Um, and then over time, uh, as I learned more, uh, you know, the conviction just hardened over time and, you know, here we are today, but, um, I, I, I'll have to give it more thought, but I haven't nailed down, you know, either life events or distinct personality traits beyond curiosity yeah. that, that, that have kind of led me to it. Have you ever done like the MBTI or, or ocean tests or anything like that? No, what's that? Um, so MBTI, Myers-Briggs type indicator. Okay. It's, a, it's a, a personality test for the business world that um, is statistically invalid, but um, provides very like interesting uh, phrasings or, or terminology for, for describing how you are and how you work. Um, So like when I took it, I I maxed out two of the dimensions, which were big picture thinking and (laughs) um, procrastination, basically. Sounds like, sounds Uh, a lot like me, man. (laughs) Yeah. And, and those I think are, are foundational to why I, furiously wanted to find out more about Bitcoin. And I, and I talked to my friends who are, you know, still working in, in consulting and their heads down, they, they're focused on their job. They're better, <laughs> they're better employees than I was because of it. Um, and I can't get them to pay attention to, to Bitcoin um, because it, they just don't have that personality type, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the case for a lot of people, you know, and, and that's another thing we often think, you know, so many people just don't get it, but like life is busy for a lot of people. If you've got kids, if you've got a, you know, a, a, a stressful career, if you've got all sorts of stuff, I mean, you're, the time you have just to kind of explore intellectual pursuits is, is relatively limited. And, you know, when you get time, maybe you, you want to spend time with your kids. You want to go on a vacation or something like that. So, and, and again, it's all really interesting how all these dynamics play out on the adoption curve. Because at some point, yep. Yep. at some point on that curve, that person will prioritize learning about it over the vacation. But yep. for most people right now, that's not the case, you know? And that's where those, those quadrennial FOMO moments come in. 
uh, that's that nudge that, that everybody seems to need um, to really dig into it more. Yeah, I notice in your, um, in your analysis, you, you know, there's other than kind of the how we define adoption, there's no price discussion. You know, you're kind of just mm -hmm. art articulating how something like this typically unfolds and making the correlation to, to how Bitcoin could unfold and it was specifically relating it to its um, halving cycles. Uh, which is which is awesome but i first of all you know what, what what do you think about that and maybe you know you mentioned the stock to flow model earlier maybe you relate it back to that but also what role and we touched on this a bit earlier too but you have the adoption curve and as we said the critical thing to determine is what constitutes adoption but mm -hmm. we have to pick something right to in yep. order for to be able to work with these models but as we know you know once you know, it's almost like first you adopt, you adopt something and then there's like an absorption cycle, right? Mm -hmm. So you're in and then it just the it kind of the degree to which you integrate that technology expands uh, in your life in terms of how much or to what degree you use it, invest in it, et cetera. Yep. Is there any way, how, how do you think we would best model, articulate, display uh, that component yeah. of adoption. Well, that's a great, I like this a lot. So let's, let's dig into it here. So we could think about um, simple awareness of Bitcoin on the adoption curve. So if we think about the world, probably most people have heard about Bitcoin or just heard about it. Um, so we're probably somewhere in the, you know, at the top of the adoption curve there. So in terms of simple awareness, like have heard of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're the furthest along with that first baby step towards uh, adopting and integrating it into your life. And then and probably the next step is have some amount of skin in the game, right? And we're much less far along the adoption curve there, something like 1%, right? Um, and then there's the, you know, have a significant amount of skin in the game, um, which is what I chose to do my analysis on and, and that we have 10 million people in the world, something like that, um, half a percent into the adoption curve. But then the number of people who have, you know, at the extreme, it's like I view Bitcoin as my savings account. It, it is where I'm storing my money. Um, and like, how many people do you think view it that way? I, Very few. Yeah. Um, if 60 million people, if the, the number of the exchanges like to quote, 60 million people have any amount of, of crypto asset, um, and 600,000 people have uh, a Bitcoin wallet with at least one Bitcoin in it. We're probably, it's the number of people who view Bitcoin as a savings technology, like the best savings technology for them to store their wealth in, has got to be much smaller than 600,000. Um, we could be, there could only be 100,000 of us or 10,000 of us. But 
is that the shelling point? Is, is that the inevitable conclusion of digging deep enough into the rabbit hole? I think so. I hope so. Um, if that's true, we are, we are something like, you know, four or five standard deviations out still in terms of the, the, the ultimate adoption of Bitcoin as the primary money of your life. Yeah. That's pretty wild. But um, it's almost like you need, like for, for one technology, you need several different adoption curves. You know, that would, that would be kind of interesting to see. So let's say you have an adoption curve for people who have wallets. So the exchanges say 50 million or whatever the number is, right? Then you have an adoption curve for thousand bucks or more. Then you have an adoption curve for mm -hmm. 10,000 or more. Then you have an adoption curve for, for, you know, people that use it as a savings account. And I presume, you know, so sometime in the future, let's say uh, streaming payments become a thing. So every, every minute you work, you're compensated rather than every two weeks or whatever. Yep. So there's an adoption curve for, you know, basically adoption curves for, for each use case. Of each, it. each use case. And then if you could take some kind of a weighted average between, you know, all of them and, and construct something, uh, that would be interesting too. But, you know, maybe that's kind of outside the realm of, of usable data. But, you know, it would be interesting to know, because um, as you were saying, like so few of us probably treat it as our primary savings account. Like that's yeah. where that's very, very early days. And so that, you know, as you pointed out on the, on the thread, you know, for the criteria that you specified, we're here on the curve. Yep, right. Um, but for a different set of criteria, maybe we're down okay, here. Way earlier. That would be, I, I think that would be interesting to include on, a, on something like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll spin that up. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, I keep thinking about, um, I think it was a Trace Mayer quote of, you know, he, he has the great quote of, uh, Bitcoin is a black hole on the world's balance sheet. But he also has a quote, same idea, but um, Bitcoin is a you know, $150 billion tiny little blueberry that is hooked up to the city water main. And this blueberry is infinitely expandable. <laughs> and when I think about how early we are in terms of people viewing Bitcoin as like the best place to save their money, um, and the, that the use cases that we are further along in the adoption curve on are all smaller dollar use cases. You know, they, they have a hundred bucks of skin in the game or maybe have a thousand dollars, but still primarily viewing it as a speculative bet. Um, those are small dollar use cases. And as you move towards the Bitcoin is the preferred savings platform for or preferred savings method for my life um that that's where that water main really turns on right because that moves from small dollar use cases with with a reasonably large amount of people towards much higher dollar use case with and eventually the entire world um flowing their value from the water main into that tiny little blueberry. Uh, basically, the, the, the short of it is that if Bitcoin runs the gauntlet that it's running 
and achieves that end state, we are dizzyingly early. Right. And do you make or do you ha- do you make price predictions? You know, after assessing data of various kinds, both your own and and others, yeah. do, do you do you see price horizons, or do you leave that alone? I I, I do. Uh, I, I guess part of how I ended up really getting to the the level of the rabbit hole that you need to get to 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 become a maximalist was by trying to disprove the stock to flow model. So when that came out early last year, I was like, this is preposterous. <laughs> there's just, there's no way. And then digging into the mechanics that underlie that model and trying to figure out why it, that couldn't possibly work led me to, you know, learning about stock to flow generally and, and monetary policy more broadly. and then finally reading the, the Bitcoin standard after, after not wanting to because, because uh, <laughs> it, it was um, something that, that was coming from this abrasive character on Twitter that, that uh, didn't agree with my political views, you know, some, some superficial wrong reason like that. Um, but anyway, so the stock to flow model, I believe is, is, right um i think at some point it it breaks down but i think that as as long as um there are significant changes in the annual inflation rate in in each subsequent halving um which there will be for the next 12 years at least i don't know maybe 20 years that that reduction of available supply makes the, the asset a much better store of value and will attract a lot more dollars to be stored in this superior store of value than it, than it was a year earlier. Um, and that the, the shock to supply demand price equilibrium spurs that that bull run every time that um, the halving arrives um so basically it, uh, i i don't know where the right future price equilibriums are um you know the, there's that full range of anywhere from fifty thousand, fifty-five thousand in the first stock to flow model to the you know 288 000, um cross asset model which I don't think a plan be made that because of the structural limitations of the data um, causing co-integration to be technically invalid based on the statistical modeling tools that um, statistical testing tools that are available today. But I don't think that that limitation necessarily means that the, there isn't co-integration. Um, it seems quite clear that the price does move with um, the stock flow over time. So um, basically, I I think that we are going to keep overshooting the right price equilibrium based on the stock to flow model. Um, And then 
and then falling back under that correct price equilibrium and then spending the next four years uh, homing in on, on the right level before the next um, halving happens and the supply shock happens all over again. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, because I know, <clears throat> you know, it's a very contentious uh, issue, but the, you know, the stock to flow model is, is basically attempting to value Bitcoin um, and, and attempting to, I guess, extrapolate or predict demand based on the changes in its scarcity. And the, you know, the, the assumption there is that Bitcoin scarcity is, prop, you know, I guess the primary value prop that uh, people see in it. So when it becomes more scarce, that value prop is magnified in people and their demand for it is exacerbated effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we know there's other value props for Bitcoin as well. Censorship resistance and programmable money and all sorts of, of other stuff. Where do you think... Do you think it's wise, useful um, to model an asset like that based and make the assumption that its value prop is one specific thing rather mm. than several things? I mean, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I mean, of course, you're right that the Bitcoin does so much more than, than just serve as like a store of value. Um, But if we think about like where the bulk of the focus is or, or the bulk of the money comes from um, or, wh- or why it stays there, better yet, why does, it, why does the bulk of money stay in, in Bitcoin? It's because people are, are storing their value there, right? Um, so, I mean, you, you're right that you'd have to like break the value of Bitcoin into its constituent use cases and then and sum up all those little pieces to, to, to do that justice. But I think probably the bulk of that value would, would fall into the store of value bucket. And as the stock to flow um, keeps ratcheting up, Bitcoin becomes a better and better store of value asset. And I think, you know, we're, we're hovering right at the, the annual inflation rate uh, of gold right now. And what happens next, having when we're suddenly a, twice as good of a store of value as gold, I think you attract a lot more value, a lot more money to come live in Bitcoin because of that um, shift. So I think that that's probably the biggest driver, but you're right. You would have to like break out the, what are the other pieces of, what are the other use cases and, and how much value they drive as well. Let me ask you these two questions regarding, um, this has to do with adoption insofar as we were talking about before about what kind of impediments would there be uh, to the timeline of adoption. And so on the mm-hmm. one hand we said, this is the strongest incentive you know, game there is with money. And so stands to reason the adoption cycle is going to be as fast or faster than other technologies just because it, has, it conveys such a asymmetric advantage. The, the other, another 
argument may go something like this. Part one, <clears throat> and relevant to what we were just talking about, scarcity and stock to flow, is it's, it's somewhat strange to me, and I know there's been manipulation in the gold markets via central banks and other entities, but, but in the intervening years since 2008, when we kind of started on this, well, obviously we didn't start on the fiat experiment, but it, it, it reached a, a degree of manipulation um, that we hadn't previously seen. And a lot of us were kind of taken aback by the measures taken at that time in 2008-9. Up till, let's say, pre-COVID crisis, um, a lot of money printing had gone on, a lot of, uh, you know, monet a lot of bad, or one would think damaging monetary policy through uh, governments and central banks around the world. And yet the kind of gold, which was the soundest, well, excluding Bitcoin for a moment, but um, there didn't seem to be much movement or interest during such an, an, an era of, of abuse to gold during that time. Now, I know it coincided with an equity bull market and all the rest of it, but this is kind of my point, is that in an era now where people can have their cash app and you know, they can buy fractions of a Tesla stock, for example, and I'm not super familiar uh, with the Austrian argument on this point, but I know when I spoke with uh, Gene Epstein before, you know, he was making the case that um, at least some Austrians thought that money should only be a medium, medium of exchange and not a store of value. And mm -hmm. if people were able to, um, you know, in perhaps some kind of make-believe world where their assets were so liquid, that they could hold them up until the point of time they needed to make an exchange and then convert into the exchangeable good and then convert back to an asset immediately after the purchase or the exchange, then, you know, there wouldn't be money. So what I'm getting at here is if we have um, Cash App, if I can hold equities, let's say my, saving, my cash savings account is basically equities. Mm -hmm. And then when I want to go buy a dinner at a steakhouse or something, I sell my Tesla stock at the moment, at the point of sale when I'm paying my bill. And it just, as you know, as other services are trying to do in the Bitcoin space today, it just does everything in the background. It goes from cash to, you know, the payment processor. And then the payment yeah. processor converts into their own um, asset, liquid asset afterwards. And cash becomes such a... Um, marginalized or less important yeah. less important as, a, as an instrument of, of value storage that the case for something that um, that does store value as a cash is is lessened Do you know what I'm trying to say here that was a bit yeah blurry, totally do but, yeah uh, and the things that jump out to me are <laughs> in the scenario you described there's, there's friction every every step there and and yeah like at scale could that friction be you know, approach zero, yeah, in theory. Um, but there's friction and there's middlemen and, in those steps. And, and so if you're a business who's a middleman, you, you have to take a cut in order to support your P&L. Um, and that's so much of the beauty of Bitcoin in the first place, right, is, is disintermediating money um, and how we exchange it. Uh, and, and yeah, then I come back to your, your point earlier in, at the beginning of your question was, you know, why didn't we see gold significantly outperforming equities for the last 10 years? Um, 
but I think that the the, the reverse question is is plays in here of of why did equities become a store of value? And and I think the answer is that well the the signal that was sent to the market to the world was that the Federal Reserve is going to you know bail people out um, that risk should be taken that um, leverage should be added because everything's too big to fail now um, and and that's the, that led to the monetization the the store of value ification of uh, of equities so I think that that time frame is um, not representative uh, of of the the truth of of gold's stability versus um, storing value in, in equities generally. Right, and I, I agree with that. And I think, kind of, to answer my own question, I think part of the answer is at least, um, you know, let's say that works and the tech is there, and you can just go from te- you can pay for a stake with you know by selling a portion of your Tesla stock. I think mm-hmm. you know part of the answer is um, the risk-free element of, of savings. You know, I think society benefits mm-hmm. from having a risk-free method of storing wealth, and that's probably the most um, suitable to be a transfer of, of wealth as well, a medium of exchange. And, but as you say, the kind of, um, the, the risk assessment has been perverted, or at least highly influenced in, in what we're dealing with today. So that, and in fairness, you know, Bitcoin is highly volatile and people see that as risky and depending on your your time horizon for when you want to use it as a medium of exchange it very much is and so i i think possibly that's why we have this you know back and forth um in in the current landscape but i think as things continue to change yeah um you know bitcoin will be seen as a a, a more risk-free way of preserving your capital especially longer term capital and you know, markets will be seen as, as more risky than they might uh, appear to be today. Yeah, I, 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 um, I've been digging into to Jeff Booth's book um, and he has this excellent point that over the last 10 years, we've, we've had to add $4 of debt for every dollar of growth. Yeah, and the, you know the obvious question out of that is how long is that sustainable for? We, we're distorting markets on on a scale that is clearly not sustainable for long. Um, and what happens when when the that jig is up? The the store value of equities is thrown out. potentially, or at least to some extent. Yeah, I, I think bad things happen, right? People, yeah, uh, people overinvest uh, and, you know, you can make the case that people overinvest in Bitcoin, but the interesting thing is, is, you know, you know, you always know how much of the, the ultimate total supply of Bitcoin mm-hmm. you own. And despite intermittent short-term volatility, that's a tremendously unique thing to be able to have. In fact, yep. I don't think you can have it anywhere else, right? Nowhere else. The, um, the, the Robert Breedlove article of um, zero in Bitcoin, I think nails this, this 
what makes Bitcoin so special, and, and I don't know that it gets enough um, airtime, um, is, that, you know, if you, if you accept that in the physical world, it's not possible to achieve absolute scarcity because you can always make more of whatever good, whether that's gold, finding more gold, or, you know, even if you were to say, we're going to use Picassos as our, as our absolutely scarce money. Well, there are other artists too that, that sort of add to that supply. But so in the physical realm, it's not possible to have absolute scarcity. So we've never had absolute scarcity. And then in the, in the digital realm, you have 20, 30 years of history of never having scarcity. Copy paste was always possible. Mm-hmm. And then in this flash of a moment, there is a system that exists digitally that invents absolute scarcity for the first time in human history. And then of course, there are plenty of other systems that follow that copy paste that whole system and are effectively creating an infinite number of um, copycats and therefore they don't have any scarcity built into them. But that first and only system that invents absolute scarcity in the digital realm does have it. And so you, by owning a slice of that pie, that is an absolutely scarce um, stake that you have, that you will always have. And in, in, a, in, a, in a system that cannot be added to. And that, I think, is going to take us decades for us to really wrap our heads around. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, to your point about Breedlove and a lot of the other great writers and people in this space, I mean, their, their time is, it will come, you know, once, as we yeah. have said so often throughout this conversation, you know, we're so damn early. Um, but once more eyeballs get on this space and see the kind of quality of thought and people, you know, it's, yeah. there's going to be a lot more interest. Uh, do you, do you think there's going to be any Nobel prizes? <clears throat> Well, I mean, Satoshi's going to scoop up all the damn prizes available for, for a while, I would imagine, once this sinks in on people. But yeah, I, I think there, there'll be thinkers and writers and, and people in this space that, are, um, that will be deserving and, and that will uh, you know, uh, receive uh, accolades for seeing things early and that kind of stuff, for sure. It's, it's, it's yeah. kind of unavoidable. But you know, think, talking about the absolute scarcity, I think that's one of the things, not, not only that people just can't understand the concept really and how it could, you know, and why even the digital realm is required for it. But if we go back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, control and, you know, ultimately having faith in humanity Mm -hmm. and I might, I might be out on a limb here. So pull me back if I am, but um, you know, this, the scarcity, first of all, Bitcoin has established absolute scarcity. And I think many of us would agree it's the only shot. You either, uh-huh. you either coalesce upon this digital scarcity or you don't have it at all and it's lost forever, which is that in itself is just a crazy, in my opinion, realization and so, you yeah. know, something to grapple with. But the other aspect of that and the one that perhaps requires you know, faith in oneself or humanity generally is that that scarcity, although it's facilitated by the bringing together of, of the technologies that Bitcoin deploys, it's upheld via a social layer. 
yep. right, via the people that choose, you know, that, that say this is the one and only digital scarcity or this is the one and only absolute scarcity rather. And I think a lot of people have a very difficult time with that because they know how fickle and uh, persuadable and corrupt people can be. Mm-hmm. And they think that that is, you know, a kind of Achilles heel to this whole system. Now, and I think it's, it's fair to say it's by no means a done deal, right? We, you know, there's been episodes in Bitcoin's history where that, uh, you know, social layer has been tested and th- thus far it's passed the test. And I think it, it's becoming less susceptible to um, failing that test as we move forward. Mm-hmm. But I think it's still important to recognize that that's a part of it. And perhaps it's a fun intellectual pursuit to try to explore, um, you know, what, how, what our role is in it and what kind of uh, realizations or, or understandings about ourselves as both individuals and collectives allow for it to emerge and, and be maintained. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, I, it totally makes sense. It, I, I think a lot about how, you know, I, you're probably the same way. I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out, like, what am I missing that makes this not work? Mm-hmm. You know, where is it going to fall off the tightrope that it's walking and, and you know, catastrophe? Um, and there's always that thought of, like, well, what if, what if, nation states rally together to come up with some fair and and alternative decentralized digital currency but but baked in that it's not possible it's you can't have an authority saying hey everyone this is the thing that we're going to go with now trust us we won't we won't change it yeah um and that's you know people talk about the immaculate conception of Bitcoin, and I think that is underappreciated. That was one of the sticking points that I had as somebody who was interested in what other technology improvements are there on blockchain, blockchain technology, and you know what are the the faster, better, more efficient ways that you know, people have come up to come up with. Um, going from that to recognizing that you know what 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 really matters is that. Um, this thing was able to achieve traction and, and um, scale without any marketing budget, you know, without any central authority promoting it, um, and therefore without any central authority that has the ability to steer it. And that's never going to happen again. Yeah. And we, I think we all, we all benefit from understanding that on a deep level. And as a result, of course, benefiting from this thing, again, as individuals and as a collective, but also being stewards of this, you know, ultimately mm-hmm. precious thing. And, you know, that's the type of language that, that people that aren't into it would, would you know, uh, it would raise an eyebrow. But yeah. all the things that you just mentioned and that we've been discussing and a lot more just point to how, you know, not only unique, but, but how unlikely all of yeah. this was. Um, and that we, you know, we have to appreciate how precious it is and be, and steward it, uh, I guess, as we have been doing, but continue to make yeah. sure we steward it in the right way. Which, which brings in all these responsibilities that, or, or areas to help 
contribute, right? And part of that, part of the, something I'm thinking about now is, is what are the changes in messaging that are necessary to attract the, the more mainstream people that inevitably need to come on board. And you could argue they will inevitably come on board because they have to and, and nothing needs to be changed. But you could, but it's also possible that without the right messaging, we fall into the chasm, you know, and we don't um, successfully resonate with the mainstream. Um, so, like, what are the what are the ways that we can, as stewards, help onboard people more effectively? <laughs> it, it, it extends to like. Um, for a long time, I was I was very interested in trying to figure out who was Satoshi, right? And I spent a lot of time digging and and digging around there in in like 2016, 2017. And now I don't care. But further, I I actually think it's our responsibility to to keep him anonymous. Yeah. To yeah. Um, point people in the wrong direction, actually. All, right. All these little things that we as stewards have to do. Yeah. And what else have you, you know, because I, I agree. I think, I do think this is going to, I mean, it's not going to happen without people, but it's going to happen without my conscious effort to make it happen, obviously, mm -hmm. right? Without mm -hmm. any one person's conscious effort. But I do think, uh, you know, perhaps it's, we help, well, help steward it, help accelerate it, you know, maybe... Um, we avoid some pitfalls if we, if we bring to it, you know, our best intentions and our efforts and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I definitely think it, you know, there is a benefit to engaging and, and, uh, you know, expressing the different elements of this thing that you care to express and, and that kind of stuff and that are meaningful to you. But what, you know, you say you've been thinking about it. Uh, what, what have you kind of come up with in terms of messaging that, uh, that, uh, resonates with you? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I've been experimenting um, with what are the ways that I can get traction, get intellectual engagement from my network, my personal network. Um, <laughs> so I've been trying everything, you know, in terms of how do you roll out the value proposition? How do you entice people in? Um, and it's such a mixed bag. I, I can't say I've, I've come up with anything that works better than anything else. Um, but I think that that's experimentation and tinkering that we all need to be doing. And then, um, you know, communicating what works within the community so that we can evolve our, <laughs> it sounds bad when you phrase it as like a sales pitch, but, uh, but, you know, evolve our messaging about why everyone should have a small percentage allocation to Bitcoin today. Yeah, show more effectively. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and you know the the efforts of like Stack Sats, brilliant. That, that's fantastic. That and it's an auto DCA. What the guys at Swan are doing, I think, will be a big wave mm -hmm. um, for this next era like if you think about where we were in 2017 in terms of onboarding and you know the infrastructure that was set up 
And most importantly, there the UX, the user experience, the, the UI even of, of these systems, it was atrocious. Yeah. And then now you have in your pocket Square Cash, um, the Cash app set up. I think it has more users than Venmo. Um, and now Venmo and PayPal are, are going to be following because Jack Dorsey has created this, this, uh, this competitive advantage that they can't resist, they can't turn away from. Game theory, um, baby. It's, yeah, the game theory of it is brilliant. And, and I'm really excited about like, this, this push towards um, uh, among like, energy providers to use their unused gas flares. Mm-hmm. Just plug up, uh, you know, what, what, what's his name? Is it Steve Bar- Barber? He's working on that. Um, yeah, hook that up to a generator and connect that to some hashing power, and and suddenly you've monetized your waste energy. And we're still in this early stage where the regulatory powers, the people that have the the ability to really fight and potentially snuff out this community, are confused or unaware that this thing has staying power and is a threat and to the extent that we can get entrenched with with the um paul tudor jones characters of the world but then also the paypals and venmos you know built into their business models and then built into the business models of energy producers we're we're on track to have a um a foothold that cannot be um, regulated away. Yeah. And that's exciting. I totally agree. You know, you, you, you want to be careful not to assume things are inevitable, right? Because that can, you know, that, that can lead to some dangerous thinking or action, but you know, it's at some point you also have to allow yourself to believe you're, you're seeing things clearly because otherwise you won't act. And uh, I guess finding the, 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 the happy middle ground between the two is, is where you want to hang out. But, uh, you know, there's just so much encouraging stuff going on and so much greater integration and the game theory playing out on so many different levels and the education. And as you say, that the, the technology improvements and what we were talking about earlier in terms of kind of what people are adopting when they come in at what stage of the adoption cycle and curve, it's also encouraging. Um, Mm -hmm. man, I'm going to give you the last word, but before, I think I forgot at the beginning, um, just so people have context for this discussion and obviously you don't, I don't want you to dox yourself or anything, but what is your professional background? Are you comfortable saying that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so I spent, um, a number of years in, in consulting. Um, in fact, that was one of my projects was one of those experiences that made me more open to Bitcoin when I, when, and, and digital assets generally, I spent some time on a, like my, my firm's internal perspective, shaping the, my firm's internal perspective about how to approach uh, banking digital transformation. <laughs> and what the takeaway, the single takeaway for, for me from that whole exercise was that uh, banks are unable to to transform their business models um, and really even go digital 
the, the one thing that was off limits was we can't, you can't even suggest that we change the mainframe core banking system. They're still running mainframes and they refuse to, to touch that. And yet they talk about, you know, digital transformation and how to update their business models for the digital world. Uh, you know, th th those were the kinds of technology projects that I was working on in, in uh, management consulting. And, um, you know, that, that background made me think about what are the disruptive trends in technology and just how unprepared um, large business is to see these threats in advance and adopt, uh, adapt to them. It's very rare that you have a, a Netflix that disrupts their own business model of mailing DVDs to go to a streaming model because they see disruption coming. Um, and, I, and that's part of why I, I think that this is going to catch the entire financial like, sector off, off guard. Nice. Well, man, um, this has been super enjoyable. I know we could probably do it for another couple hours, yeah. but we'll have to save that for another time. Did you have any last words before we shut it down? Um, no, I, I, I think I, we, we riffed on a lot of things. So, um, yeah, I'm, just, I'm excited for the future. I, I, hope that, that people, um, I hope that people keep working on, on how they're attracting their network in and and share best practices nice all right man well look um thank you again for coming on it's been super fun good luck with everything and uh look forward to connecting in the future yeah sounds good john get it going right. see you brother